Hello? Hello, Merlin. <clears throat> Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm uh, fine. Fine. It's early. Feels early. Feels very, very early for me because I had very much gotten onto the Portland time schedule and I'm still all messed up here. We can go back to later if you want. You want to go to later? We can go later. No, it's all right. This is this is good. It's a reason for me to, you know, have pants in the morning. <laughs> That's important. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm still waking up a little bit. But I'm good. I'm good. I had uh, I had a hot coffee and now I'm having a nice coffee even though I said I was going to get off these things. They got sugar. They got they got uh, evaporated cane syrup in them. That's the bad kind. What? No, I thought HFCS was a bad, bad kind. Well, I mean, you're for, well, sh- all sugars, not good. But I think you okay. want to get you want to start with with raw sugar, and then the cane is next. I don't know. I'll follow bug. <laughs> I'll see if uh, blue blue bottle coffee has a radar. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so it's good you uh, yeah, you went to Portland. I did, I did. Have a so good time. Did you? did you have a good? Yeah, no, I, had a great I, I did. I couldn't make it, but did you have fun? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we missed you there. Yeah. Well, you know, I do what I can. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of uh, a lot of duties here. Mm-hmm. Got to make a lot of duties. No, it was fun. It was really fun. It was your first should... time in XOXO? Yeah, I feel weird. I always feel weird. <sighs> Talking about things I've done that other people didn't get to do, but but it's worth mentioning because it was it was nice, it was nice. Um, so we should talk about it. Yeah, let's talk. All right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, my first time. Um, I uh, was invited there to do a thing, and I did the thing, and uh, then I hung out. You know, did a lot of hanging out. Mm-hmm. It's good. Ate a lot of steak. Uh, what else did I do? Took a lot of Ubers. It's pretty weird. But it was good. It was good. Now, now, how about you? This is your second one of these, third one of these. How many? Fourth, and it was. Oh, it, yeah, I've been to all of them, and it was great. And I just got to say, uh, your thing was was really great. Were you there for that? Yes, I was in the front uh, row, uh, a second row from the front. Oh man, I black out. We did a live. You look nice today. You look nice today. It's a podcast I used to do, and we did a live uh, version of that, which is it's weird. I, I kind of black out when I'm doing live stuff. I don't is kind of like that with podcasts. I've heard other people talk about this. Like you don't remember anything you said until you like hear it again. But uh, yeah, I think it was funny. I think it was funny. It was, it was very it was funny. Really, it was very fun to do. Very fun to do. That's a lot of high caliber performing people there. Yeah. Were, is the episode that you guys did going to come out as a You Look Nice Today episode for people who didn't get to hear it? Or is it just a, just a live thing only? Uh, I think it's somewhere in between. I, I think, I don't know this for a fact. I, I've seen lots of... Uh, at least links to lots of talks people have done in XOXO. So I, I hope they recorded it and I'd love it if they put it out so I can hear what I, what we said. <laughs> so you yeah, won't be releasing it in the official. You look oh, nice I don't, today I don't know. We haven't, we haven't talked about that, but um, I don't, uh, but I think I, I hope they were oh, you know what? I should find out. I don't know who I'd even ask about that. I'm sure the Andes are, are very uh, tired right now. I don't want to bug them. Yeah. I don't think they want, they are quite conscious yet. If we're tired, just as attendees, they run around like crazy. Yeah, I didn't even do much, but you know, it was just, it's, you know, like all these things, it's, it's nice to meet people. It's, I mean, it's just, it was crazy. I mean, I talked about this yesterday on Roderick on the Line. I mean, it felt weird. It feels so name droppy, but like it was, uh, I mean, like people that I just have not seen in so long or people like I just hardly ever get like Eric Meyer was there, like just walking around talking to Eric Meyer. Right. Like that's giant. Like it's an honor. Like, <sighs> 
it's not, it's not, it is partly a stars in your eyes thing. Cause it is kind of crazy to walk around and see people from stuff that you've enjoyed for many years. Yeah. And, and, and it's neat to, to get to meet them. But, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's rare to have those events that are like of a size where you can actually like see people. There are a lot of conferences that are where you might happen to see people, but it's, it takes a lot of work. But, uh, yeah. So, so who, who'd you meet that you're excited about? Well, you know, for me, I think the first year for sure. And the second year was very, very, very much of, uh, of what you're saying where you get to meet these people in person. For me, it was in person. I know you've met people in person because you lived in San Francisco. It was easier, but where I was in yeah, Florida. We basically all just, we want, it's like that, it's like that thing in we, where we just all wander around seeing each other, bumping into each other. <laughs> San Francisco. It's just it's really just a place where people walk around. And it's meet a town like center. Think of it as a, a town center. It's and, kind of like a town center, except it's not as nicer than a town because yeah. it's San Francisco. So yeah, you mostly just walk around and meet famous people, and then they give you money. Um, <laughs> pretty much, that's all we do. Well, here. no, but uh, so your first year, it must have been a little overwhelming. It was for me because these were all people that I had either n- never known or had any communication with and just admired their work and their cool stuff that they had done or had some degree of friendship with them, but never met in person. So this was everyone from like Heather Champ to Jason Kotke to I think I might have met Scott Beal there for the first time. I mean, the list goes on because there's so many people were there. And after I think the first couple of years, a lot of the people who had been going super regularly for those two years were, you know, I guess coming or maybe not necessarily going. So it, the focus kind of shifted to meeting a whole lot of new people that uh, that are doing really, really cool things, but weren't sort of the, the people who were the first to start blogging, which is kind of how that that category was like the, the bloggers, the original bloggers were all there. And and now right. it's oh, totally, people who are doing totally. just crazy cool stuff. Uh, I was now. I was, walk, I was walking in the door at the podcast meetup, which is uh, one of my favorite events that I went to. I met so many nice people, uh, reconnected with a bunch of people. But like Justin Hall walks in, I'm like Justin Hall. Yep. I've seen you since like a really long time ago. He's like, and I'm like, ah, it's <laughs> so weird to like. Yeah, I mean, like anyway, it's kind of lame to just sit here and name names, but it's pretty cool to be walking around and just like run into like I did a lot of like running up to people and uh, in a really dorky way, just introducing myself and saying, you know, hi, I really like what you do. Yeah. So like, yeah, it was it was really fun. But like, I was able to run up to um um Iron Mike Eagle and go, hey, hey, um, I don't interrupt you, but uh, hey, I really like your podcast. He goes, hey, you're the guy that's always looking at my podcast. I'm like, yeah, I totally <laughs> love your podcast. And Jonathan Mann, who happens to be standing right next to him, goes, and I wouldn't have heard about the show if it weren't for Merlin. And it was like it was like a ridiculous, like an Edgar Wright movie. It was very silly. This is but, what I imagine just living in San Francisco would be like every moment uh, of every day. I feel like at some point I have to address <laughs> that that is a joke. Yes. And that, that San Francisco is a horrible, horrible place. I, it's, it's a funny joke that you make it sound like a fancy place, but this place is falling apart. I, it's okay. We can that get back makes to me joke. feel bad. That makes me feel bad. You should bad. feel bad. It's horrible what's happening here. It's a terrible, terrible city. And so like, I'm okay with the jokey part of it, but I, I, if, if I have to pick a side to be on for like where San Francisco is going, uh, I, I'm not in the tall buildings that, that threw people out. <laughs> I'm like hoping I don't get evicted. Mm. Like it's horrible here. It's it's just every day there's like another, I don't want to bring the show down, but like, I'm happy to go back to the joke in a minute, but like, it's, it's, it's genuinely unsettling 
what's happening, what has been is happening. Is this something in the you've city. seen in the last few years, or has this been much longer than that? Well, you know, part of what makes San Francisco interesting uh, is that it reinvents itself in some form or fashion every few years. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it's always it's it's always been a place, not always, but it has frequently been a place where people come for some kind of a boom. And uh, then people who create the infrastructure make money off of that, and the people who came for for the boom leave penniless, and like that's the thing that happens, and that from the gold rush all the way through, uh, you know, the dot com boom and all those things. But um, it's 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 always been as long as I've lived here, it's been a very expensive place to live. It's becoming increasingly um, less less diverse in almost every way. Wow. Not just it's not just a race thing, although that's huge. It's it's definitely a class thing. My kids' teachers can't afford to live in the city. Our principal <laughs> lives on the other side of the bay. Um, you know, pe- people who have the, the the people who have gotten in on like a rent controlled place can mostly kind of live here. But then you'll just see a story in the paper about a place, a beloved like a local restaurant who just had their rent tripled, and that's just how that goes. And now your rent seventeen thousand dollars a month, and so that just happens. And then you got Airbnb coming in. And now anybody who has a place, tons of people, you can go see maps of how many Airbnbs in San Francisco. It's not a little ha-ha thing where mom and pop have an extra room. It's a thing where people are buying apartments just to have as Airbnbs. That, that reduces the amount. I'm sorry, I don't want to do a rant about no, this. No, I'm, I'm fascinated I, I'm, 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 by this. Well, no, I don't want to make it sad, and I don't want to sound like I, I, I don't have a sense of humor about San Francisco. But I moved here 16 years ago. Yeah. I've been here for you know, like an okay long time. And like what has happened in the last three to five years is excruciating to watch. Like we joke about the poop on the streets. The poop on the streets is not funny because that's coming out of people who have nowhere else to poop. And nobody is, no one knows what to do about it. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's really stark. People who come and visit here expecting this glittering metropolitan city will get that in certain places. But when you're walking between those certain places, you're going to see the most outrageous level of impossible desperation you've seen, not only in the first world, but in a place that is supposed to be a a modern, up-to-date, caring, liberal city. And that's that's really, it's it's difficult to watch, but it's also difficult to even know what to do about it. So anyway, it's just... Well, how does that get better? (laughs) It's an incredibly complicated problem. Um, that I, I couldn't, I couldn't begin to unpack. I mean, there's not something where you have a meeting and pass a referendum and suddenly everything gets better. It's a, a, probably a, a whole topics if we ever want to talk about it sometime. But it's incredibly complicated because it gets into almost every aspect of what makes someone's life difficult. You start out with with the difficulty of maybe not having regular income. You start out with the difficulty of having physical health problems. You start out with you have maybe potentially mental health problems. You have things like drug problems. You have problems like estrangement from family. Yeah. You have all these things that contribute to a place where like for example in Portland, like there's a bunch of people who sleep on the street and like that happens in every major city because it's America, but you know, it's just that here there are camps. Like <laughs> people have camps in the city. Uh, they uh, they are just anyway. I I don't know. I just it's I want to I want to have a sense of humor about haha San Francisco. But I also I want to make sure people who hear that joke every week understand that my my response to that is not simply trying to be a karma suck. It's it's the fact that this is. an incredibly complicated problem that has gotten way bigger than anybody could have expected. You know, do you uh, feel like having traveled a lot to so many different cities, do you feel like San Francisco is 
suffering more from this problem than some of the other places that you've been? Like listening to to John talk about uh, like where Portland was 10 years ago and how it's improved. You know, hearing you talk about how San Francisco has kind of is, is not improving over 10, 15 years. I haven't traveled to that many cities, but I can see just, let's put it this way. When I go to uh, Manhattan or I go to Portland, I, like I say, I don't go to that many places, especially when you go someplace like uh, in Canada, like you see stuff where you go, oh man, that sucks. But, you know, compare that reaction to the people who come here for an event. They're all excited to come to WWDC. Right. You come to WWDC and just walking from your hotel to the event, you're going to see desperation uh, on a scale that is almost unbelievable. I'm not talking exactly like World War Z, but like it's pretty, it's pretty bad and pretty difficult to fix. It's not, it's nothing as simple as saying let's build a shelter or let's 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 just do this one thing with low income housing. And and to 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 go ahead and just touch the third rail. The other part of it is that that the thing that's making that much worse is that there is such an influx of impossibly huge amounts of money for certain kinds of things here that it creates an impossible disparity. You've got houses that are like going on the market in a day and people are buying it for a quarter of a million dollars over what's being asked. Wow. So, but no, that's just, that's, that's just what happens now. So if you, you know, my wife moved here in 1989, or excuse me, 91, and had a studio apartment for $700 a month. And now I think the, 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 the average like starting rent for a two bedroom is something like around like four thousand dollars. Oh or my god, that's unbelievable! I, I know it's at least in the in the three thousands. So wow, you know it's anyway. I'm I'm sorry, we can cut that out. But no, I, I mean this. I just, I, I just you know, and part of the the feeling is like it's not simply that I feel like I'm not doing enough. It's like nobody. There's no simple solution for doing this. So it's difficult to have a conversation about how the city is running without having a conversation about these two wildly different ends of the spectrum yeah. in terms of income and possibilities. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's just, it's really, I'm sorry, that's a bummer, but I had a great time in Portland meeting <laughs> people from the internet. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm sorry. I, 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 that was, you know, that was really random. I just, I wish there was more, I wish I could find this. There was one episode of a local, uh, call in show, um, called Forum that they don't do on KQED in the morning. And it was one of the most, it was such a, I think I've mentioned this before, but it was a really revealing look at, at particularly the issue of homelessness in San Francisco. And this is probably almost 10 years ago at this point. But it helped me to under, at least start to understand how much more complex this problem was than most people realize and how the, the complexity of that problem makes doing anything to solve it uh, really complex. I'm not saying there's no, I'm not saying there aren't ameliorations or ways to help people. There are, but the problem as a thing continues to grow and grow and grow, partly because the reasons are so very different. So if you're talking about income uh, inequality, well, good luck, uh, America. Let's, right, let's work right. on that for everybody. You you look at the problem of uh, people who are out on the street because a lot, you know for a long time, it was people who couldn't afford their uh, HIV and AIDS medicine. So they could either have medicine or they could have a house. So that happens. And because and you, you can imagine that desperation slides quickly. So what do we do? How, how do we fix the health system? Oh, hi, America. We also have a crazy health system. All right, how about medicine? health. How about the fact that there are so many people, many of whom are veterans, that have uh, a lot of organic and physical things that lead to uh, intractable uh, mental issues. 
Well, you know, uh, how are we doing on that as a country? It's, it's almost like we're this canary in the coal mine. It's just that we happen to be uh, a coal mine that has like really nice restaurants that no one can afford. So anyway, enough about that. We should talk about barriers, productivity. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, one thing I love about Portland, you know, we have streetcars here, but I love that they have like what seems like pretty good public transit there. Yeah, just, it's pretty good. You can get around, and I was—I I liked how like everything. There's like wh- where you need where you need to go is probably kind of near where you are, which is nice. This is such a it's such a crazy big country, and it's like ev- so many cities are so very different. It's impo- it's almost impossible to talk about what it means to be a medium to large or even just famous city because each one is so different. That's true. That's so true. And you realize that once you start going to different cities in a real way, like I grew up in Philadelphia, but I was a kid when I left there and spent so much time sort of in the South and Florida and North Carolina. And like they have cities there. I mean, especially Miami, like that's a big city, but they feel very, very different than these concentrated cities that have been around since the dawn of time in America, you know, like San Francisco or Portland or New York. They have this, this just such a concentrated feel. And I think we've talked about it here. Radiolab did a show on it talking about time and the perception of time and how different cities actually in, in reality are moving at different times. And the people in them have their sort of bubble of perception of time perception that's different from, from elsewhere. And just the character of a city in so many ways, it determines the way you feel when you're there. It's very weird. It's very weird. Yeah, th- this might be a, a good topic for you to talk about with um, Roderick on, on, on your show, but I don't know. Something I learned from him that I still find very interesting is, is how much you can learn um, about the makeup of a city based on the geography of the city. Something I never really thought about and like how the, the, the accommodations and acclimations that a city makes over decades and centuries. Because, you know, if, if there's a good spot to dock a ship somebody's going to figure out that this is a good place to dock a ship. And if you realize that this is a good place to dock a ship, even if there's like relatively little there, well, first of all, there may already be people (laughs) with smaller boats who live there, but uh, you're going to go, Hey, you know, we could bring ships here. Like this is a place where we could, we could bring, you know, uh, goods. uh, And this is a, this is a safe place that we can bring about. Well, suddenly you have the beginnings of a, a port town or you realize like, oh, this is a place where there's a whole bunch of flat area and not much stuff in between. We could put a railroad there. Or, hey, here's this river that will help us get from one city to another. And this is one of the rare places in this very large river where you can easily get from one place to another. And you can go look at any city and look at the complexion of the city based on things like the geography. And then, of course, the, the history and stuff like that. But uh, I, I find that fascinating. And and then you also look at the way that a city fights against itself. You look at a way a city like Boston, whereas they say the city, uh, the city streets were laid out by cattle because basically <laughs> those crazy streets in Boston, it is said, were based on uh, cow paths. And, you know, then you look at something like San Francisco, you know, the neighborhood I live in is very much a grid, a completely artificial grid. I mean, it looks almost like a chessboard. They call it, you know, the avenues, the Western part of town. So, you know, if you're in the, like, <laughs> nobody, nobody started making San Francisco with an idea to filling up the whole, uh, you know, top of the peninsula. So it kind of builds in a concentric circle from the Northeast part of the city out. And so, like, in our neighborhood, for example, you look at it on a grid and you go, oh, that seems totally sensible. It's a grid. Like, the city, the uh, streets are alphabetical. 
and the avenues are numerical. It's almost, if, as long as you're not incredibly blackout drunk, it's almost impossible to get lost in my neighborhood. But, but here's the funny thing is that there had at one point been a plan to build roads that accommodated the way the hills were made. So like if you ever have driven up a mountain, do you drive straight up the side of the mountain? That would be bananas. No, you have these curving, uh, like lower grade roads that would go around the sides of the mountain. So there was a plan at one point to have the hilly part, hilly parts of the city have streets that made more sense, but <laughs> that didn't work out. And so now there are streets where like going two blocks over could mean a difference of 10 degrees in walking or driving up the hill. You go look at something like California street. Like it's crazy how steep that is. So I don't know, sometimes, you know, the mental models that we apply to a city don't make sense with the geography of it, but then you live with it, that becomes part of the city, and now people come here to go on the California Street cable car. Oh, because by the way, cable cars came along, and that became a way for people who lived in these, you know, any city you go to, pretty much the higher up neighborhoods are going to be the more expensive places. You could finally build fancy houses on top of a hill because you could have a cable car go up there. Anyway, cities. Today's topic, I'm back to work. (laughs) But you know, it's funny, like you think about like you, it's you have pretty bad traffic in Austin, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's like eighth worst in the country. I'm not sure exactly, but it's bad. Yeah. I avoid it. I avoid it completely. I'm very lucky, and I don't have to be on 35, which is always bad, and I don't have to be on Mopac during rush hour. So it's I'm very very lucky in that What's, I don't what really. Is, have what, to is, what is Mopac? Mopac is uh, is sort of another uh, interstate. That's that's here, also known as uh, Texas State Highway Loop One. Oh, I like the sound of that. Yeah, but like for example, like you know, but even it just from out- Missouri Pacific Railroad. Oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah, but like for example, apparently now, um, and I when walking around with Roderick when he mentions he's from Seattle, the first thing anybody mentions is the traffic, because apparently the traffic in Seattle has gotten almost untenable at this point. Um, because it was never designed for that, right. right? I mean, even you take a place like Atlanta, which is so sprawling, it seems like there should not be any problem getting around, but that creates the very problem. The idea of having suburbs means that you have to take some kind of transportation to get from where you work to where you live and back, or, you know, you know what I mean? And, but, you know, <laughs> you ever have to drive in Atlanta? Like, it is, it is not fun. Yeah, I've only so done it a few bad. times. It's pretty horrific, pretty bad. Yeah, but then, you know, what do you do to fix those problems? We can try to come in and social engineer it. Like, I think in London now, uh, I'll have to, somebody can correct me on this, but I think in London, there's a lot of uh, restrictions on how many, like, personal cars can be in the city during the day. I think you might have to maybe pay to drive in busy times of day. So, I don't know. Cities are, I mean, cities to me are one of the most fascinating levels of geography, of politics, and culture in the world. Like, you know, cities really have a personality and you can really, you can be somewhere and you can be there for half a day and go like, this city has a really different feel to it. There's all kinds of things that are, feel so different about Vancouver versus Portland versus Cincinnati versus Tallahassee, you know, uh, versus Orlando. I find it fascinating. And it's also interesting what attracts different people to different cities and why some people wind up staying there, why other people wind up leaving there, like finding that city that's feels like yours. Like a lot of people ask me who, who know that I lived in Florida or Philadelphia or North Carolina, whatever they come back and say, well, what do you think? Are is Austin your home? Is Austin going to be your home? Do you feel like it's your home? And you know, when I lived in Florida, man, I just, I was like, I, I, I you know, you don't want to say it to someone who's like buying the house next door to you. 
How do you like it here? Well, it sucks. It's the worst state I've ever lived in, and I wish I could leave today. <laughs> Welcome right. to your new home, neighbor. Here's uh, the keys. Yeah. You know, so that was always frustrating. But being very honest about living here, I absolutely love it. And I'm listening to you talk about San Francisco and how many problems it has and the changes that you've seen there. And I'm imagining what if what if that was Austin? Like what if those things or some of those things in smaller degrees happened here? I would really hate it. And I totally know where you're coming from. I'm, I mean, just putting myself in that situation, it sounds really, really miserable because you went to San Francisco and stayed there because there must be things you really like about it. And so seeing these things yeah. happen that feel you must feel kind of frustrated about all of this that's going on and, and uh, maybe helpless in a way I would feel. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I'm really fortunate for now. Um, but, but, you know, the, um, you know, first of all, I, I like your point about like where you're going to live, because I think maybe as you get a little older, you get at least into your thirties, maybe you've got a kid or you're planning to, or there's something about, but there's something intrinsic about the desire to live somewhere. Uh, ironically enough, when, um, when I was uh, in my 20s, Austin was a destination for a lot of people. You know, you get those cities that become like buzz cities for a time. Oh, whether yeah. that's Maybe because of music, right? So I think of like Athens, you think about Seattle, you think about Austin. But, you know, I had a bunch of friends that moved to Austin just to live in Austin, mm -hmm. like as a thing. And I think as you get older, I mean, really, without even, they might go their sight unseen. You pack up your car and drive to Austin because it's Austin, which is, you know, uh, this may sound like a distinction without a difference, but I think as you get older, you think a lot more about tons of other things, like what kind of airports do they have? How easy or difficult will it be to see or not see my family uh, that lives somewhere else? Uh, obviously, things like what is the employment, how, how would I be able to find employment or go to school or something like that? Take my portable job skills somewhere. Right. I, but, you know, so when you're, and this is not a value judgment, but like when you're younger, you could just say, hey, I just want to go to New York because it's New York. I mean, that's plenty of reason to go want to live in Manhattan or, or Brooklyn. But yeah, I think as, as you get older, I mean, I would think at this point very carefully about a lot of factors, I guess partly based on preferences, based on needs. Like I would want to know, like, are the schools pretty good and how difficult is it to get there? You know, how much driving do you have to do? You know, you know, all, all, all that, all that kind of stuff, uh, that you, that you go through with that. But the, then, then the funny part is you say, well, I moved to Austin because it was Austin. And then what happens? Well, maybe you get a job and you work for a while. Maybe you lose that job and you get another job. You're still in Austin. You're in Austin because it's Austin. But then, so the thing is now you need to make money. So maybe you stay there because you have a place that's affordable for now. And you have a job. So the things that initially bring us to the city uh, sometimes have an unexpected knock-on effect in why we stay there. And I, I think in this case of, for example, Sarasota or Tallahassee, two places I've lived, where a lot of people came to Sarasota, to, in my case, to go to college, and ended up staying there because they knew people there. And it was kind of inexpensive, uh, you know, pound for pound. And if you didn't know what you wanted to do next, if you hadn't gotten into Johns Hopkins, you know, graduate program, it was a place where you could, it was pretty manageable. So it's sometimes surprising. You go someplace for some reason, and then when you've outgrown that reason, you still end up staying around because it's comfortable or it's doable right. or, or something like that. So yeah, it's, that's, it's, it's weird. I think it's, I'm guessing it's pretty different from how people lived 50 or 100 years ago. Oh, it gotta be. We really, you needed your family. It was difficult to get around. You couldn't just, you know, hop on a jet and be somewhere. 
um, you know, in, in a few hours. I don't know. I like cities. Um, would you like to tell me about something that you like? Sure. I would like to tell you about fresh books. Now, here is a pop quiz. We have a quiz for all of the freelancers who make uh, their living billing for time and expertise. Okay. Which of the following tasks represents your favorite part of freelancing? A, formatting and sending invoices. B, collecting your receipts and tracking your expenses. C, following up with clients who don't pay you on time. Or D, none of the above at all, ever, in a million years. And that's probably most of us. Like, that's answer D. And that's the way that pretty much all the people who are involved in creating FreshBooks feel. They want to take away this hassle and the pain of sending invoices and tracking payments and worrying about who's paid you and when. And they have made a really, really easy to use cloud accounting software system that thousands and thousands of people, many of whom are freelancers or small businesses are using to save time and get paid faster. And that's the key with them is that their goal, the whole goal is to get paid faster. So you create and send these invoices in minutes instead of uh, many minutes or many hours and you can track them. You can see when the people that you've sent the invoices to open them and when they've seen them. So there's not this guessing game of, well, I sent them an email last week and I haven't heard back. What happened? Well, no, you get to see that they've seen your invoice and you can send it to them in lots of different ways. They can click a link in, their, in the email that you send them. You can actually send them PDF files. They even have a way in FreshBooks so you can, they, they, FreshBooks will print out and mail the invoice. I mean, obviously you got to pay postage, but they'll do that to, to the mom and pop shops that you want to invoice. Anyway, to try FreshBooks free for 30 days. They've made a special URL just for listeners of this fine program, freshbooks.com slash back to work and the code back to work spelled out with spaces in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up. That's very important. That's how we get credit for the show. That URL again, freshbooks.com slash back to work. Thanks very much to them for making the show possible. Walk, walk. That's a great service. I use that service, Dan. You got me on that, that. and now I, I never look back. I you, never look back. You cl- you climb on, and you never dismount. <laughs> no, why, why would I dismount? I don't know. I'm happy up here. I'm back in the saddle again. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, let's see. I got a few little bits of uh, pseudo follow up. I want to um, promote, uh, formally promote something. Kind of strange, but I'm going to promote it anyway. Um, <laughs> for some reason, tonight I will be appearing live with the uh, hosts of the Slate Political Gab Fest from Slate. And, uh, yeah, here in town. And uh, it's at, I think it's the Rouse Theater, I think it's called. Um, But uh, it's uh, it's, uh, that that crew, who are some really great people, and it's a a really good show. And uh, I'm going to be a guest on there uh, for a segment, and I'll have to be amusing and stuff. But I I just learned from uh, John last night, uh, John Dickerson says, there's still tickets available. And so I want you to know, if you're in San Francisco and you'd like to see the smart people from Slate Political Gap Fest and potentially me, um, I have a link in notes to where you can go and pick up tickets to tonight's show. You can learn more about it. I've got a link to the podcast in case you want to go listen to it. It's a very good show. So, uh, you know, if you're in San Francisco and you're looking for something to do tonight, uh, come to uh, Slate Political Gap Fest live. And Dan, in as much as you can say for security and privacy reasons, I know you might not want to say anything. <laughs> could you let the listeners uh, know uh, where to find show notes for episode 238 of your Back to Work program? 5by5.tv slash B as in brothers, 2 as in the number, W as in women, slash 238. 238. Um, sometimes URLs are hard to give out. 
sometimes. Uh, what was that? God, what was that? Can- I can never remember. What was the name of that content management system? The first, like, giant, enter- well, the first one I knew, it was like a giant enterprise content management system. It would make those crazy URLs with, with the commas and the very long, what was that called? Oh, like, man. Wi- remember Wired used it? Um, and, and it had I'm- all the numbers and the commas and just insanity. And this is back in the day where we cared about URLs immensely. And today, I think Google has ruined that for us. But back then, like, the fact that it made these terrible URLs really was depressing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. And at the dot com I worked at, there was like, I feel like, like three to six months of the engineering cycles were burnt up on moving. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I'm moving from Cold Fusion uh, to this this content management system. I'm not even sure why we did it, but you kind of had to, like, to be taken seriously. You had to have these ugly URLs. Oh, they were so they were so bad. And then Jeffrey Zeldman came along, and he explained to all of us ah, the glory of having human readable things. And once again, we never look back. URLs matter. Well, I think we're in a pretty good place URL wise, but. People don't really seem to care that much about it anymore. And in fact, Safari like doesn't even show you the URL by default anymore. You can type it in and then it, it just goes away. Yeah, I feel like such an old man uh, <laughs> in so many ways. And one of those ways is I sometimes would like to link to something on the global internet. Right. <laughs> and so it's it's not it takes like three clicks to get into the uh into the into the you know the URL bar. Yeah. What's it called? The field and copy everything out. Yeah, yeah, it's come a long way though. The internet's quite a thing now. I think it's going to be big. I really, really do. And yeah, political gap fest. That that that's that. Do you, have, do you have anything you'd like to promote, Dan? As long as we're promoting? No, not really. Okay. Um, we got a lot of nice responses. Uh, well, not a lot, but a handful of nice responses to last week's show, which I thought was a, a little bit wackadoodle and off center, but people seem to like it. Um, some nice moving responses to the uh, notion of uh, of slow your roll. Yeah, a lot of responses to that, and I love it. That was something that you really hit on uh, a topic. I think this is interesting to a lot of people, and a lot of people connected with it. You know, yeah, it's not a a, a new or unique topic, but. Uh, just with that said, I think it's something worth thinking about. We got an interesting bit of feedback from listener Kartik, uh, who wrote a nice note and said, I would love to hear you guys talk talk more about slowing your role with respect to learning a new skill, although you've touched on similar points in the past, or making major life decis- decisions. Do you think there is a better reframing which will not lead to thought paralysis in addition to being mindful? Woo! Mm. That's, a, that's a good, big question. Uh, I mean, uh, you got anything on that? I, I'm willing to take a stab yeah, at I it. Yeah, I mean, please do. I, I, I haven't thought about it, but uh, <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting remark. Slowing your role with respect to learning a new skill. Yeah. Um, so this kind of gets into the uh, the expertise issues that we like to talk about, at least I like to talk about. The 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 problem, the, the basic problem of wanting to get better at something, knowing roughly what something is, <clears throat> but I mean, the very nature of being new to a topic or a skill is not knowing how to be good at it. Mm. I mean, there are the trappings of being good at it, um, but like, how do you how do you know how to actually get started? And I think we all know that experience of feeling very overwhelmed by trying to learn something new and feeling like you take something like comic books, like where it's you know you you start out going like comics seem interesting. That's a thing I'll get into. And you say, oh oh, you know what? Maybe Marvel comics. I'll get into Marvel comics. And then it isn't more than a day or two later that you're sitting there on Wikia. Like trying to figure out like which which one of the sixteen magnetos this is or or something like that, <laughs> and it's it's I think what I'm trying to say is that there's a basic filtering problem 
when you're one one aspect or one problem of getting started with anything you're interested in is there's a basic filtering problem of not knowing which stuff is super important need to know information for learning something versus which is kind of optional stuff that that you can learn later or which you know you know does that does that make sense no it really does i think that on the from the very outside when you hear slow your roller you hear that expression I think there's the slang version of it, which is a bit more simple than what we're talking about. And I kind of want to dispel that a little more in that slow your roll almost means like you're coming on too strong or slow down. But it's it's there's a lot more of a nuance to it the way that you're talking about it. Right. I mean, I just want to without repeating too much of last episode. No, I think I think you're right. And but the reason I like the slow your roll and I I said this last week, but when I say slow your roll to to my monkey mind. Uh, when you say slow your roll to somebody who's stepping to you, as they say, <laughs> right, right. What you're what you're partly saying is it's kind of a couple things. One thing you're saying is, hey, back off. Um, secondarily, but importantly, hey, you're being more aggressive than is necessary here, and maybe tertiarily, uh, you know, if, if you don't back off a little bit, there could be consequences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get a punch in the nose, as John Roderick would say. Um, and that's why, that's why I like the slow your roll part, is that there are times when your brain needs a talking to. There, there are times when you've got to just go, okay, that's it. Hang on. Let's slow this down. So the reason I think that's useful here is um, if you feel like there's an onslaught of information, well, let's, let's look at it this way. Like If you're trying to learn a new skill, you might learn one little fact about that thing. And that one little fact leads you to another fact. And that leads you to a third fact that might then open up an entire area where you go and, you know, Wikipedia, some term that leads to like 15 new things. Mm. And pretty soon you have this, you know, leaf node thing going on where you have like glossed over a huge amount of information, but cannot yet walk away knowing what three things in all of that was critical. You can suss some of it out. You say, oh, obviously this is a term that comes up a lot. That seems really important. But it's so overwhelming and and it feels like again a kind of monkey mind or lizard brain approach is that when you're feeling overwhelmed by information what do you do well of course you go out and get more information and pretty soon you could really work yourself into a lather that's not actually that productive and so to me the slow your when you're learning a new skill the slow your roll part is going like look it doesn't matter what this thing is it doesn't matter how complicated this thing is everybody who's great at this right now started out not knowing jack about it and there's no way to know how somebody became good enough to know whether they wanted to stick with it. But we can say with some level of certainty, there is a way to start with this. So the solar rule part there is to go, wait a minute, I don't need to know everything about this. In fact, trying to learn everything about this could make it extremely difficult to learn the minimum number of things to get started. And there's, there's, you probably already know the example I'm, I'm going to jump to here. It's not something I know a lot about, which maybe even makes it a good example. But, you know, using Bash as an interface to the uh, to the Unix operating system or Unix-like system. So I've got a book in my bathroom. I think it's called Learning the Bash Shell. Um, but it's I had it as a bathroom book because I was like, you know what, I really, I need to learn more about this. And so, but the thing is, if you're not mindful about that, if you pick it up, uh, and I've said this before, forgive me if you've heard this before, but it, you could read a book like that, uh, as you would say, Dan, unskillfully, mm. and think that CD is probably as important as trough or that, you know, um, or, you know, basically what you want to, and actually the O'Reilly books are actually good about this. They have a thing at the beginning that says, hey, like, here's these five commands. 
you got a CD, you got an LS, you got a PWD. You learn, you know what I'm saying though? Like if you learn these five things, you're not going to know everything about this, but don't worry about learning all that other stuff until you at least know, start to understand and begin using these very, uh, not basic commands, they're incredibly powerful commands. Um, but you know you don't need to don't don't worry about re- learning every flag for RM yet. Maybe for a while or every attribute, you probably need to keep the book right in front of you <laughs> when you're using RM because we need to tell you that's a very powerful command and it can go wrong. But isn't that? I mean, are there other examples like that where you you know if you it's almost like saying I want to learn English, so I should probably read the dictionary, start with A and with Z and learn all the words. Well, you know the funny thing is, you know I, I think. I might get the story wrong, but I think the cat in the hat started as a challenge to Dr. Seuss. Uh, someone challenged Dr. Seuss to write a children's book using, I think, 50 words. Did you know that? I did. I did hear about that. That's uh, pretty close to the story, right? Yeah, that's the, pretty much the same one. I heard it. I heard it about uh, green eggs and ham, but that I don't know yeah, which might, one it yeah, is. Yeah, could, could be. One, yeah, we'll find out. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we will. But, but the, the notion there is that you can tell a story with 30 or 50 words, you know, there's some words that are much more important than others. My daughter, my daughter started Spanish yesterday. And so like, they're not, you know, do do they teach her irregular verbs on day one? No, slow your roll. They're teaching her, you know, me amo Eleanor. And, um, and that's, that's a good way to do it. Like, here's some things that you can pick up. I'll bet you pretty soon she's gonna, she's gonna learn more greetings. I bet you she'll learn pronunciación. (laughs) A little bit of vocabulario, uh, but like we can, don't worry about irregular verbs. You don't even know what a verb is yet. So I don't know if that's useful uh, to our to our listener. But to me, the slow your roll part on a new skill is uh, accepting that however big a topic is, there probably is a mindful way in that involves not trying to learn everything. And then I guess I guess you know maybe the practical component, as you say. Is that once you once you know enough to understand the extreme basics of this, you will be in a better position to understand the less extremely basic stuff, but you, but don't, don't let your reach exceed your grasp. I would say, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm also thinking about the notion of being self-taught of figuring things out on your own, as opposed to with a curriculum. And there's two things that I recall about this. One of them is an old story from my own history that uh, wound up keeping me from getting a job that I wanted. And the other one was uh, something that my son is doing now as he's learning math in second grade in a completely different way than I've ever seen in my whole life. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's like this process that you take to learn something. And if there's no guidance there, how, at least in my case, how you can develop these areas where you know a lot about one thing and almost nothing about another area. And the, the, short story that I remember I was interviewing for a job and oh my gosh, it could have been my worst with Microsoft. Uh, <laughs> I was doing this interview and I was, I was in this interview. It was a phone interview and uh, the guy was asking me all these different sort of networking related questions. And I was talking about, you know, at the time, probably windows NT and all the different things I knew about setting up windows NT on a network and how you could push updates to the windows clients. And like, I was on top of this, you know, like I, I, because this is what I did every single day. And all of this, everything that I had ever learned in programming and software development and networking and it stuff was stuff that I had just figured out on my own. 
I, I've read books, of course, but I never really followed the books. I never started with chapter one and ended with chapter 30. I just read about the thing that I wanted to see and then went to the next topic. And Almost like a, like a buffet. Very much like a buffet. And I, I, I never followed like the process. I just learned what I felt like. So here I was in this interview and the guy says, okay, you know, to, let's talk about networking. And he asked me, so what does TCPIP stand for? And how does it work? And what's a packet? And I got, got all of it, right? And he says, well, just tell me what, what's net 10 and when would you use it? And I said, what do you mean net 10? He said, net 10, when, when would you use it? Why would you use it? It means they uh, pay the invoice in uh, 10 days. <laughs> That's what I thought it meant. That's the terms, net 10. Right. <laughs> and I, I couldn't figure out what it was. Now, keep in mind, this is... This is way back before we had iPhones. This is back before we had Google. This is back when if if I was on the phone with him, it meant I couldn't search the internet in any way because my modem couldn't connect while I was on the phone. <laughs> so I didn't have a way to you know cheat and find out. I just said I I have no idea. And he's like, okay, well, thanks very much for your time. Like that was oh, enough. Wow, that 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 uh that much. Like just cut it off. Right yeah, there. I mean that was pretty <gasps> much the end of the interview because. Net 10 is something that's so fundamental for building a private network, a NAT network. It, well, it's whenever you see the IP addresses that are like 10.0.0.1 or the equivalent of that, which is 192.168. Whatever. These are reserved IP addresses that are meant to be used for internal networks. So if you have an Apple uh, Express or an Apple Extreme or pretty much any, any network, that you've ever used forever in your home or office. They're all giving you these private IP addresses behind the scenes. And when you go to the internet, it, it's handling the routing of those. But I had never heard it called net 10. And my experience with, you know, configuring my own Linksys uh, WRT router at home was always with the 192 address space. I never, I didn't even know there was a net 10 until I got an Apple router and I, so I was completely ignorant of that. And I had also never heard it called net 10, which apparently is what it was always called. But, you know, thinking about that really showed me that I had a lot of holes in my knowledge base because I thought I knew a lot of things and I did, but I didn't learn some of these basics. I remember being oh, in, in God, computer that's rough. Right. And I, I, in computer science class in college, there were people who were sitting next to me who had taken advanced math and they were going into computer science to be to, because computers were how you did the hard math. And so that's what they were doing. And I kid you not, these people didn't know how to turn the computers in the computer lab on and off or how to get around the OS. They were math brains, you know. And for me, I'd been building computers since the 80s, like running a business out of my, uh, my little bedroom when I was in high school and early college. So like... I, I just assumed that if you knew computers, you knew computers and you could install hard drives like an upgrade RAM. Of course you knew that. But here were people who were way smarter than me who were like, how do we turn this on? I've never used, uh, you know, an X Windows machine before. And I was like, what's wrong with you? But I had even bigger gaps of knowledge. I just didn't realize I had yet. And now looking at the way my son's coming home and I'm supposed to help him with math homework, they do this weird thing now where they represent tens it's like this tens thing. Have you heard this? Tens? There, um, there's like a square block of 10 blocks of 10, and then there's a line, which is a, a, a tower of 10, and then there's a, 
a Dan, want- I, I am so adrift uh, on the fact families. <laughs> I still don't really understand what a fact family is. I, I don't understand why you're supposed to count the way that they're counting, why you make a line and then count. But to finish, yeah, I want to hear the rest of your story. But like, but the truth is, like last night I watched my daughter do her homework. She got every single question right. And I was like, you're in second grade. Like, how did you do all those? She's right. like, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. Oh, like, what? <laughs> like, how did, how did, and she's learned, like, they found some way to trick kids into learning things they, they didn't know they could do. Exactly. We learned it all rote, like one step at a time, like a gentleman. Right. Like, it was mem- these kids are like wizards. Yes, because they're not memorizing things the same way. Like, in, in, when I was a kid, it was all about memorizing things, which I have always been except for movie lines, I have always been horrifically bad at memorizing things. And so much of what we learned was like, let's learn the times tables. And it would sit and repeat, 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 practice, flashcards. We would do the, we'd do the times tables every day <sighs> until we could get 100%. It's, in, th- in third grade, there would be a sheet with, I guess, whatever, 100 problems. I can't even do the math to figure out how many there would be. Right. But it'd be this giant page full of like six times seven, eight times three. You have to do all of those. And I think if memory serves, once you got all of those right, 100%, like you can move on to the next thing. I think you're right. Oh my God. That's and now so it's crazy. this weird, they're using these really cool, Im- and, I, and so he's coming home with these word, second grade, seven. He's coming home with these word problems that, you know, Lucy has, uh, uh, 432, you know, bows and she wants to have this many and how many, you know, it's word problems. I didn't have word problems when I was in second grade and he's doing them and like getting them. I'm like, what, how? Yeah. I don't yeah. get it. But anyway, this goes back to the, I like, I like your example to though. the process, That's, you know, but no, I, but like to get back to what you're saying, I, it's, it's, you're putting it extremely well. And it's, you know, again, we're back to the expertise problem. Like in your case, you might have been learning stuff that was more advanced than what you could or should or needed should, to know yeah. <laughs> at, at your point. Yeah. But, but you know, if you don't have the basics, again, it's hard to know. If you're not an autodidact, if you're teaching yourself something, that can be really hard. That's a really good example. Yeah. Um, look at that. Did you see that link I sent? In the robot? Yeah. Or in the other robot? What was in the other in the first robot, the main robot? Let me look. I just I, I put this in show notes. I what was the number I pulled out for how many magnetos there are? <laughs> Did you say eighteen? I forget. I'm like ha ha ha, whatever. There's like six or twenty magnetos. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at your link now. <laughs> please just slowly scroll down the page. Oh my god! And they're all different. Uh, well, they're different universes. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, you know, what? <laughs> no, I know there's at least 70. Wow. <laughs> what if AVX, that's earth TRN 294 dominated by X babies, earth 971023. Right. Also, Not to be confused with the Wolverine led alpha flight magneto from earth, uh, 39 oh, to the confusion. Cause they're both magneto. <laughs> okay. Now here's news to me. He, is his 616 name is Max Eisenhart? How did I miss that? <laughs> I thought he was Eric Lyncher. Did you see that at the top of the page? Yeah. Max Eisenhart is Magneto's name? I don't know. What is happening? <gasps> anyway, I encourage you to go to the Wikia page for Magneto and realize how much you probably don't know about why well, I know I know, of course. You wouldn't know this. His name is Max Eisenhart <laughs> in Earth 616. Mm. He's known as Big Town. <laughs> in uh, Big Town. He's known as Big Town in Earth 110. 
<laughs> strange. Not right? No, that's got to be the name. Oh, that's Big Town must be the name of the series. Although from now on, I'm going to call him Magneto Big Town. That's <laughs> like dumbass if they don't mean. <laughs> oh, you're thinking of Eric Lencher from the Warner Brothers movies. I'm talking about Max Eisenhower, <laughs> otherwise known as Big Town. <laughs> <laughs> Dummy. Oh, oh my God. God. So many universes. Dan, who comes up with the names and numbers for the, who's coming up with this? Well, they're all gone anyway, right? Oh, geez. So you know what? Oh my God, this is all obviated. Yeah. Battle world. Now you like that, right? No. Oh, you're one of the ones that did. Oh, that's right. You don't like, it. you said so. Yeah. Okay. 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 I'm not trying to draw any flack about it, but I know, I know you, I, you're understandably sensitive. Oh, wait a minute. Hang on. I'm sorry. I didn't get out of the section with the movies. You got Eric Lencher from earth 10,005. Then you got Eric Lencher from Earth TRN 414. Now, wait a minute. Hang on, because we haven't gotten to the TV shows. You ever watch Superhero Squad where everybody's like a little guy? That's Eric Lencher from Earth 91119, which is a great show with Luke Perry, if memory serves. Oh, uh, 1990s X-Men cartoons. That's Earth 92131. Mm, I think that was a Yes album. Uh, Pride of the X-Men. I think there was one episode. Uh, that's Eric Lencher in Earth 652975. <laughs> It's too much. Oh, gosh. I'm so sorry, Dan. I hadn't gotten to the video games. In X-Men Legends, that's Earth-7964. You got X-Men Mutant Wards. That's Earth-205-117. Marvel Nemesis Rise of the Imperfects. That would be Earth-5070. Oh, you know what? There's a section <laughs> called Others. I'm sorry. In Sa- whatever Saxon Android is. Oh, that's He's a 616 there. You got Kun-Yin Zorn. Kwan-Yin Zorn? A little bit ping pong. Char- Charlie Phillips. what that mean? He's the, the news anchor guy, I think you're thinking of. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Charlie Phillips from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Right. Call it a Charlie job. Uh, <laughs> Dan, this is overwhelming. Um, <laughs> could you please tell me about something else that you like? I would like to tell you uh, about something I think we all need right now, and that's a little bit of rest, a little lay down. Casper, they're an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. You know, the mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying ridiculously high markups. And Casper, they're coming in and they're, they're what we call a, in the business, we call a disruptor. They're changing mm. the whole game. And the way that they do that is they get rid of resellers, they get rid of showrooms, and they pass the savings on to us, the consumers. These mattresses are fantastic. I know that you sleep on several of them. Merlin, I do. I'm night. like a princess. Um, <laughs> you are like a princess. I can barely, it's so close to the ceiling because they keep sending me more. <laughs> right and now there's a small aperture into which I can crawl. It's difficult to even put a pee under there at this point. Right. I'm, I love mine, Dan. I love it so much. They're great. And they're a combination of latex foam and uh, memory foam. And some people don't like the memory foam. And when they hear that, they get very scared. They get very nervous. And I was one of those people when they sent this because I went on a, uh, on a, a so-called vacation about three <laughs> or four years ago. And my wife had found a lovely little cottage near the beach here in Texas, but they, you know, she got, she got there and I was actually coming up like a day after, uh, they did cause I had some things to finish up. So I was driving up and she said, listen, I, I got to tell you that these are memory foam mattresses. No. And I was almost just like almost just slammed on the brake and spun the car around and turned back. I dealt with it, but it was terrible. So when I heard that, Oh, Casper once advertised with us, I was worried because I thought there was a... This is a completely different thing. These feel in every way like a wonderful, lovely, luxurious, traditional mattress. The memory foam part is there, but it's just enough 
to it's a hybrid mattress so it's just enough to to give you the best parts of what memory foam is supposed to offer and none of the bad stuff and they're wonderful they're comfortable and uh, my son is obsessed with with these mattresses here's the great part it's weird to order something like a mattress online because you're worried what if i don't like it they give you 100 days to figure that out it's a really really great process if for some reason you don't like it in that 100 days they will come back take it away and and you don't have to pay for any of that shipping couldn't be easier and they are giving $50 toward any mattress purchase to our listeners. Terms and conditions apply. But here's what you do. You go to casper.com slash back to work and use the code back to work to get your 50 bucks off. So thanks very much to Casper for making this show possible. URL again is casper.com slash back to work code back to work for 50 bucks off. Go check them out. Great mattress. I have just two concerns about Casper. I, I probably should, we should cut this out. Sure. Um, I mean, the whole I'm, show will, will never air. Never air. There's two, quite, uh, I, I worry about the sink and the bounce. Do you, <laughs> how do you feel like, how do, how do you feel about the level of sink? It's perfect. Okay. What about the level of bounce? It, great. Okay. I'm sold. I'm going to get another one. Okay, I'm going to have, have a uh, ceiling extension. Put you in. just lean against them and lean again. You get a, we're going to accordion ceiling to accommodate my new mattress. <laughs> These are good. I sleep on one. I sleep the hell out of it. Yeah, I bet you do. Just, a, just an idea. <laughs> They're going to have to just run with that. <laughs> I'm so overwhelmed by these magnetos, Dan. This is horrifying. But they're gone. I think they're all gone. Hmm. Oh, God. Um, I kind of want to talk more about this topic because I like it. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, you see how I held uh, back doing the, your show joke? I held back. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, you know, I, I put a link in the... Uh, I got to tell you, I put a link in, um, I was Captain Merlin. Ah, ah, I'm going to get a uh, right amount of sink, right amount of bounce. Need to, uh, take in, uh, get the right amount of bounce. Um, <laughs> Dave, Dave made an appearance on reconcilable differences a couple episodes ago. Ah, I got to tell you, um, hi. Um, uh, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, yeah. I put something in notes uh, uh, to, to a talk that I did uh, in Boston last year near Boston. John Syracuse was there. Uh, a, a talk I did called "Advanced Tricycling," and uh, you, if you like these kinds of things, you should check out the video. It's in show notes, and uh, it's it's sort of a breezy whistle stop tour of the problem of expertise. So, uh, and from maybe a similar but slightly different angle, where. I don't know. I'm just, I'm so obsessed with this idea of like, I, I am actually kind of obsessed with the idea of expertise and what makes it difficult. Cause I think that it turns out the things that seem to make it difficult may not be the actual things that make it difficult. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, there's a funny thing that happens when we're learning a new skill, which is, and boy, have we talked about this a lot, but you know, where you get to feeling like you know enough to know your way around, but you still haven't really learned enough about the domain, right? It's almost like you started work in a kitchen and maybe you're like a, a, a trainee, a trainee prep cook and where you've learned enough that you haven't cut off a digit that day, uh, you haven't, and you haven't poisoned anybody and you, you've mostly stopped falling down for no reason. And if you can get through the day, you kind of feel like you've really made it. If you haven't, in other words, if you haven't failed colossally, mm -hmm. a priori, you are now extremely successful. <laughs> and maybe you feel like a pretty learned. But then you also realize that, on the other hand, there are people who have worked in kitchens for 20, 30 years who you may not even realize. They may just seem like, like cranky weirdos because they mostly are. But but there are certain cooks where they get a... You hear that term like, you hear like 40-year flood or 100-year flood? Yes. You know? and, and what that really... It doesn't mean that 
you get this flood exactly every 100 years. What it means is that this is a level of flood that we would only expect to see every once per century. Like it, it, you, you know, it could happen, but by and large, this is the kind of like corner case flood that we only get every hundred years. I'm very interested in the idea of what I would call the hundred year problem or the 40 year problem, because that's where you really discover how good people are. It's, you know, when you see people who run into some kind of a problem that you almost never, ever, ever see. But there are people who have encountered, improbably have encountered the 40-year problem or the 100-year problem actually multiple times, maybe different jobs, different places. But they get that kind of problem, like a, almost like a Kobayashi Maru level of problem mm. that anybody at a mid- middling or lower level may have heard about once. But you know there are certain kinds of problems that come up in any domain where there is not an official way to fix it. There's not even really an unofficial way to fix it. Uh, if we learn nothing else from Mr. Robot, we learn that there are some kinds of things that are difficult to even be aware of, let alone be able to fix. Mm-hmm. Yet, there are people who have solved enough problems and yes, I'm going to say it again, failed to solve a problem enough times that they understand the 100-year problem is something that can be dealt with using their expertise. Now, if you're a lower-level person, you may know that that's a possible superhero task that someone can perform. If you're a middle-level person, you may have been around when somebody kind of solved that problem in the past. But the real expert is somebody who can apply this like seemingly impossible combination of skills, expertise, education to a problem that nobody else even knows how to define. And you, you know, so you, that's an expert. Everybody's so quick to call themselves an expert, but you know, it's difficult for most of us to even know how to get to that middling level, let alone to get to that level where you've been grinding on a career for so long that there are very few problems that will completely overwhelm you. And a la Kobayashi Maru, you may actually be able to find a, a very novel, non-obvious solution to something that may not actually even have a solution. Look at customer service. You know, most of us have dealt with customer service people who know how to flip to the right tab and give you the stock answer. There may be people who are smart enough to say, hey, I'm going to kick you up to second level support or like third level support or whatever. You get to talk to the wizard. But occasionally you'll run into these crazy, crazy problems. The higher up you go in tech support, there are people who have seen the most outlandish problems in the world. And, but they somehow have, a, they may be able to offer you a solution that actually seems insane. There may be a solution to your problem that to you seems insane because to you, you, you think this is a very, is an obvious sort of thing that anybody with skill could solve. But it takes a certain kind of wizard to be able to solve those sorts of problems. You've, you've encountered this, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's that, that wizardry concept that is based on well, wizard wisdom. It's kind of the same thing. It's building up that level of wisdom where you can have enough intuition and enough experience, a hands-on experience from, you know, for me, from failing at something enough times to figure out the right way to do it, that you can then look at that problem and say, here's, here's how to handle this. As opposed to the guesswork of, I think there's one of two ways to handle this. It's just that knowing. It's the knowingness. Um, I'm pretty positive we talked about this before. Uh, did, have we talked about the, the, the title of this article is The Case of the 500-Mile Email? We talk, I'm positive we talked about this, but this is something that came, came up in the early 2000s. And uh, I just put the article in show notes if you want to read it. It's an old like a mailing list uh, article, I think. But basically, somebody ran into a problem where their emails weren't going through. And it was, it was kind of strange. So they were sending emails, and they, they weren't getting where they're supposed to be going. And then they're like, that's kind of strange. And they started to realize that some emails were going through. I'm trying to kind of walk through the way a human would experience this problem. 
This is uh, this is strange. This this email that I sent didn't go through. This other one did go through, and eventually they started kind of troubleshooting. It. And, and what they finally enough of a wizard came in and went, um, "Here's the thing: <laughs> emails that are being sent to somewhere within 500 miles seem to be making it there, but an email that needs to go further than 500 miles is not making it." Is this ringing a bell? No, and that probably doesn't mean we haven't talked about. So let me, let me see here. I, I logged into the server. Uh, this was in the Research Triangle of North Carolina. <clears throat> Test mail in my own account was delivered without a hitch. Ditto for one sent to Richmond and Atlanta and Washington. Another one to Princeton, 400 miles worked. Then I tried to send an email to Memphis, 600 miles. It failed. Boston, failed. Detroit, failed. I got out my address book and started trying to narrow this down. New York, 420 miles worked. But Providence, 580 miles worked. I was beginning to wonder if I had lost my sanity. Um, so... You know, of course, you know, oh, I could guess what that is. But there was something in, there had been um, a mistake in the configuration file where I guess the timeout was set too low for sending an outbound mail on SunOS. Right. <laughs> it was like a perfect amount of time to have an email not be able to make it more, more than 500 miles away. That's so strange. So that's, that, that, that could be the kind of problem. I know for myself, I've had problems that are nowhere near that weird. But where I've you reformat everything, you start over, you 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 just do everything from scratch, and like it still doesn't go away, and you don't really know, you can't still because you don't understand what the problem is. All you can do is throw easy solutions at it. I mean, I feel like I, I encounter this a lot. Yeah. Right now, I'm, I'm having a problem. I'm, on, I'm finally on Yosemite, and iTunes will not uh, keep my um, iTunes authorized. I deauthorized it in other places. I've tried most of the major rain dances with this. I've like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to be asking for help here, but it's something where like it's, it seems like it's got to be such an obvious problem. I've tried three or four different things. I've tried going in as a different admin account and fixing it. But for some reason, it still won't do that. I want to, you know, back up my phone. And uh, like, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. I will probably find out the answer at some point. It could even be a very simple problem. But, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of prattling on here. I just think it's so fascinating to, to when you meet people who seem to have like a magic skill. How did they get there? Yeah. Well, they, they got there by getting through and grinding on all the basic stuff. But the, I think most people who end up being wizards have a lot of curiosity and interest, but they also have a certain amount of fortitude um, to stick, stick with something for a long time. And it's that sticking with it for a long time that not only makes you better at the day-to-day stuff or more efficient, you see patterns that you didn't realize existed, you see improvement opportunities that nobody else is seeing, but there's just this, the bald fact is that when you do something long enough, you will eventually run into and potentially solve very weird problems. And uh, I, I don't know. I think that's a fascinating thing that's almost impossible to understand, let alone achieve when you're starting out. So because, yeah, anyway, and this goes for guitar, right? I mean, think about me learning guitar and how I still have these terrible habits. I started in 1983. That I, I still have terrible habits from 1983 about how I play guitar because I've, I've never corrected them. I started out wrong and I stayed wrong. See, I remember that, and I'm, I know we've talked about this too, because guitar is such a great example of an instrument that is so easy to play wrong, or that is conducive somehow to developing bad habits, compared to, you know, because I, I've learned how to play in my life three instruments, the saxophone, the trumpet, and the guitar, and the guitar was the only one that I really liked, and it was the one that I stuck with pretty much, you know, for my whole life, although I'm so rusty now, but developing those bad habits, it's, it it seems so easy. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's because the kinds of music that you can play with guitar are so 
wildly varied, everything from classical to jazz to rock and all the different subgenres of rock and folk. And, you know, I, I, you know, learning from different people, watching different videos, you know, you watch the way Hendrix plays compared to the uh, way that Steve Ray Vaughan plays as two classic guitarists. It's completely different, even in just the way that they hold the guitar. Watching each of them play Little Wing is going to be a completely different experience, right? And, you know, whether so many guitarists will use their thumb to, you know, to fret the sixth string, all of this stuff, that you don't really have a consistent guide or teacher. But if you watch someone who's very good at playing the trumpet and you watch someone else who's very good at playing the trumpet – Unless you yourself are incredibly good at playing the trumpet, you might not even notice what they're doing differently. But even an amateur would be able to notice the different ways that a guitarist up on stage might be playing. And I think it's those habits and those building of those habits, it's so easy to get it wrong. But I think there are so many other things in life that are that, are that way. And then once you have that habit or once you're doing that thing wrong, you're playing of the guitar or whatever it is you're doing reinforces that. I think we were talking about mm-hmm. how we learned, how I learned to type not that long ago. Wasn't that last episode or the one before yeah. that? Yeah. Not long ago. Yeah. I still have so many bad habits with the way that I type because I came from hunt, learning to hunt and pack and then going with, you know, Mavis beacon and learning just enough so that I could mostly touch type. And I still know that I do things wrong and I've tried to correct those and eventually wound up getting one of those ridiculous, uh, Microsoft split keyboards uh, that are just the worst. But the reason I got it was so that I wouldn't cross over with one hand to the other hand to type on the wrong part of the, the keyboard. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. You know, so I wouldn't, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, if you're doing the ASDF thing, you, you won't lift your left hand up to hit a J once in a while. If the keyboard split, you'll never do that. And that, that was the next stage of forcing myself to break these difficult habits of doing something wrong when you know that you're doing something wrong and not the right way, not the most efficient way to do it. It's so easy to fall back into it. Yep. Yep. And and when you were telling that story, I was also talking about trying to learn 10 key and business administration yep. and how in the moment I could be faster by just looking at the keys, but that was not the point of the exercise. Right. The point of the exercise was to be able to do it without looking. I like your guitar example though, also, because <clears throat> once again, the, uh, once again, <laughs> the thing, the thing that makes us, uh, want to play guitar is maybe you want to be Jimi Hendrix or you want to be Stevie Ray Vaughan or you want to be Khaki King or whoever, like you want to be some kind of wizard on guitar. Um, and uh, you know, just to make the obvious sorts of points, yeah, there's that inclination to like want to learn how to play really fast, but I don't know. It's, any new skill can be frustrating because, like I say, you start out not even knowing what you need to know to know what you need to know, but then you end up knowing enough to feel like you know a little bit of stuff. And I think it's easy to become a little bit impatient mm-hmm. about the level of your progress because once you've gotten past, like if you're a cook, once you've gotten past the level of I didn't slice my thumb off today, you know, hooray, 10 points for Gryffindor. Like, <laughs> no, there's more to it than that because now... Like there may be a period where you're not going to advance. You, you may get to be like a pretty average. I'm thinking here about the attrition of people who work in a kitchen, but you might get to be what might seem like an above average cook within a year or two, right? I mean, you stick with it. You show up every day, stay sober and don't cut anything off. You you're, you would be pretty good. <laughs> the, the somewhat frustrating part is it may, depending on what you're doing, it may be difficult to see really noticeable progress for something like even a couple of years. It might take a couple of years of you just doing that thing every day to get better at it. Right. I imagine that is true in things like athletics and things like 
dancing. Um, I, I wonder how much it's like that with things like chess. Like I wonder how, you know, getting good at chess, it seems like it was really all about just playing a lot of chess. Yeah. Like you could read some books and get some tips and stuff, but like nothing is going to take you further along than playing tons of chess with different people. I just wrote down three words. Uh, I, I, this is not complete, but I think to, to get better at a thing, it helps to have curiosity, diligence, and humility. Um, the curiosity starts out as being the thing where I, I want to learn about this thing. I want to. I want to play guitar. I want to do whatever. It takes if you're incurious about a topic, it's going to be hard to get great at it because you don't even know what interests you about it. But if you can find something where you're curious about this topic, how to how to do it, how to be good at it. You know, uh, some Syracuse and I have talked about a lot is being attracted to things like D and D or video games, where there's so much to learn about mm. a topic. Part of the appeal is there's so much to learn. Baseball, man, that's a lot of stats to learn. That's so fun. So curiosity, but then the diligence part is that, like, even when you're feeling uh, incurious or you're feeling uh, a little burned out on it, you still stick with it. Uh, and then the humility part, to me, is probably what separates. Uh, a lot of the people who end up abandoning, that's not just diligence, it's also humility. Because, again, look at that Randy Rhodes example. Think of like somebody who's one of the best guitarists in the game who still takes lessons like on the road. Like goes to people and just takes guitar lessons. The humility of realizing that there's always something you can get better at and it's not an indictment of your personality or skill level mm. that there's something you don't know yet. Because the thing is though, those three things are highly related. Because um, if you really are curious about a topic and getting better at it, that humility will take you so far. Like if you're curious about a topic, but you don't have humility, like you're going to be, we'll talk about an anti-pattern. Now you're going to be that guy who thinks he knows everything about something. You're going to have that Dunning-Kruger thing where you think you know lots about stuff, but you don't have the humility to admit that you can evolve and get better and learn more. And I'll bet somewhere between those three things, that's what separates and, you know, I guess diligence or grit or whatever you want to call it. I bet that's a lot of what differentiates people. Of whether they can stick to it or whether they do stick to it in one... Whether they end up uh, getting, not just getting good at it, but having a future with mm. something. It's one way, I don't know, I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but one way I would think about it is like, do you have a future with this? Because certainly there are, like, I imagine there are things like, what, small appliance repair, where you you can mostly get, a, I, I'm, forgive me if I'm insulting grandpa and his uh, uh, his amazing level of appliance repair, but like if you fix small engines, I bet that's the kind of thing where like there's some basic stuff to learn that you can mostly pick up in the first year, and then it's just going to be about how many years you fix small engines. You get faster at it, you get more efficient at it, and, and maybe you do become that person who understands edge cases. But in the case of something like music, um, and I don't mean to be disparaging of trades, but I'm thinking in music, in chess, in programming, there's always something more you can learn. And in the case of some of those things, there's always something new, right? Like, no matter how good you got at Fortran, like, you might be the greatest Fortran programmer in the world. That's a thing, right? Yeah, well, n- not so much anymore, but sure. No, but it was it was a thing. But in that case, you know, you might have been, like, a really, like, one of the, one of the 250 best COBOL programmers in the world. Um, but there's not that many positions for that right now because maybe people aren't doing that quite so much. So part of your, in that case, and this is where we really get to the back-to-work angle on this, is that part of your expertise and skill and career is not only getting good enough at what you do, it's keeping your eyes open to know what the next thing you need to know is. So for those of you, who, the, the majority of you who never saw that, haven't seen that talk that I did that's in the show notes, there's a, a thing I put up on a slide that got some laughs because it's silly. 
But this is a phrase I think about a lot. Stay with me. It's hard to know what you're going to need to know until you know what you need to know. (laughs) Which very much sounds like something Chico Marx would say. How am I going to find out what I got to find out? If you don't find out what I got to find out. But um, (laughs) that's no good, boss. But it's hard to know what you're going to need to know until you know what you need to know. Which I think is a kind of a pretty good encapsulation of expertise. Is that, you know, knowing what you need to know is a great way to find out like, oh, I see, I know what I need to know. And now I've learned it. Am I done? Nope. Nope. When you know what you need to know, you've got the skills to do what you want to be able to do right now, but you also now, guess what? Ah, suddenly five new doors have opened and you go, oh, now I know what I need to know. I know what I needed to know, but now I know what I need to know next. And you can see where this goes, this door's all the way down. You open another door and you go, oh, okay. And now here's 50 more doors. Now I have to decide on a specialization. Now I have to still stay aware of these different things. And then you open another door and wait a minute, it's just 60 balconies. Where am I now? There's no doors here. Well, that's because you've entered into a whole new level of expertise where now you have to think about how you pivot to another discipline. Like, are you just going to study physics your whole life? Well, obviously you have a little bit of math in there. Like, what if I went into biology? That's a whole different direction. So I don't know. I think those things are super interesting. And so those all are so impossibly out of reach when we're getting started or when we're near getting started or we're feeling frustrated about getting started. So the slow your roll part to me uh, is a way of saying, whether or not I end up becoming great at this, I need to accept that if I do have, in this case, in, in my parlance, curiosity, diligence, and humility, I'm going to keep an open mind and a high level of energy about figuring out what I need to know for now. Because once I know what I need to know for now, I'll learn what I need to know next. And that is the only way to find out what you're going to need to know after you know what you need to know. It's pretty profound if you really think about it. That's so good, boss. <laughs> Guys, it was, that's what they call way homer. A way homer? Yeah, because you get on the way home. Oh. You got chairs, you got a dinette set. You ain't got chairs, you got dick. Ask my wife, she got more sense. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> you know, I, re- I remember uh, the movie Sling Blade. Do you remember? You remember that? Mm-hmm. Remember mm-hmm. that movie? There is the great scene in that movie where, uh, where the guy—I wish I could remember his name—Billy uh, Bob. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. He's got a name. He's got a name in the movie. He is being he calls it a Kaiser blade. Kaiser. Some call it a sling blade. He comes out of the. I don't want to ruin the movie. <laughs> but he comes out of the of where he was living to go to a place where he will be living, and they ask him if he's any good at fixing stuff. And I think it's like a lawnmower equipment repair shop that he's at, where he's going to be sort of living, working. And they're like, "Oh, we can't figure out what's wrong with this lawnmower." And he, he walks over to it, and he he looks at it, and he said, "Well, it ain't got no gaze in it." And it's this simple, basic <laughs> step one thing that these two guys who do this for a living can't fix it. But the instantaneously, he just opens the gas and looks at it. And that because that to him for and however he has learned to fix things is, is step one. And I remember back in the old days of doing like tech support that the first thing that you would say to people and they would always get insulted and you would try to to make it sound as nice as possible so that it wouldn't insult them. But the first thing that you would say is like, is it plugged in? Is it turned on? Is the monitor connected? Is the keyboard and mouse connected? Little things like that, that nowadays, because the base user understanding of a computer, for example, is so much higher than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Right. But those were the kinds of problems that step one you would uh, you would have people check, and it would shock you 
how often one of those incredibly basic things not having gas in it. I do it. I do it twice a week. What's that? We're like, oh no. I mean, like for example, we have a, an array of in our in our kitchen. We have a little charging area, uh-huh. and I can't tell you how often because you know I have these charging problems with my phone. Yes. and so and I'll sit there and I'll jigger and it's a brush a and then, of course, I look over and I realized we've unplugged this lightning cable to plug in the coffee pot in this different place. And so I'm the smart guy, right? It was never plugged in. Mm. And so I know you know this trick, but we'll share this with people. Um, supposedly, one of the tricks in tech support, mm. Dan, Dan is absolutely right, is that you, you never want to have to ask somebody if it's plugged in. Right. Because they're not an idiot. Of course it's plugged in. And if it's not plugged in, you're going to sound really insulting right. by asking them, is it plugged in? You sound like somebody from, from like a, a Saturday Night Live sketch. Uh, so supposedly, one of the ways to get around this is to say to the person, um, Okay, um, let's start out with a couple really easy ones. Could you do me a favor? I want to make sure that there's not any dust in the prongs. So could you unplug your computer, shut it all the way down, and wait 30 seconds, you can come up with a whole rain dance. And then please unplug it from the wall. Make sure it's the computer. And, uh, and just, just blow, blow, blow the dust out of the prongs. And then if you could plug it back in, we'll, we'll move on to the next one. And a you know, a stunning amount of the time people go, um, <laughs> uh, blew the dust out of the prongs. It's working now. Right. And guess what? They got to have their dignity. You got to close the ticket because you know what? It wasn't <laughs> plugged in and they didn't realize it was, wasn't plugged in until you asked them to pay some attention to, to, to the, uh, to the plug and blowing out the, uh, the make believe dust. Right. Mm. That's win, 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 win. It really is. It really is. And something that people, you mentioned that the whole dignity thing People don't want to admit that they were just doing something wrong if the thing that they were doing wrong seems like it's a simple thing that they should have known. Even if you would never say those things, wow, you should have known to check that it was plugged. Of course you wouldn't say that. But somehow it's that they don't want to come across as having missed something that was so basic, even when a lot of the time that's not something you would think of because it is so basic. It's it's that... Going back to learning guitar, when I was taking classical guitar lessons in my uh, mid, early, late, uh, mid, early, late, <laughs> in my early, mid college, mid, early, late 20s, my mid, early, late, in my, my beginning <laughs> college, that my teacher kept saying to me over and over again, don't forget the basics, not meaning that I should practice doing scales over and over again, because the scales are meaningless. But in making sure that I was sitting, because when you play classical guitar, you have to sit in a chair a certain way, and then you have a block under your left foot and the guitar sitting in the right way and your hand position. And it always like hand position, like Mm -hmm. making sure that your thumb is on the center of the back of the neck and your fingers are a certain way. And all of the, that was the basics, hand position on both of those, uh, you know, two starting points. And a lot of the time, he would say, okay, you know, play, play this thing that you've been practicing. And I would, I would start playing it and he'd watch for a minute and he'd be like, okay, start over. I'm like, what, did I mess that up? He'd be like, no, your hand position was wrong because that is how a bad habit forms, right? Not checking to see if something is plugged in, like always check to make sure that it's plugged in that basic thing, hand position, plugging something in, making sure the screen is plugged in. All of these are these basic things that I feel like are so easy to forget, and especially if you're good, especially if you have confidence in what you're doing. Of course, I don't need to check it's plugged in. Of course, it's plugged in. I'm good at this. But you forget. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking of like, you know, I have a list. Um, 
that I put, I've mentioned this before when we talked about travel. I have a list I put together over time of the kinds of things, the, the things I like to have uh, when I go traveling and I'm going to be in a hotel somewhere. And it's all the things we talked about, like, you know, uh, you know, having some tape to put over the LEDs, um, you know, uh, bringing, you know, iPhone chargers and stuff like that. And, you know, one of mine is I always want to bring a large cup because they have comically small glasses in a hotel room. <laughs> I've mentioned this a lot, but, yeah. but here's ready for the punchline. I glanced at that list a few days before I traveled and guess what? I forgot to bring a big cup. I forgot to bring gaffer's tape. I forgot to bring stuff to sleep in. Right. Like I, I, I <laughs> because I trusted, like I'm smart and I know this. I mean, Jason Snell has an anecdote from the other day. He was listening. He was driving to the airport in Oakland when the guys on ATP were talking about uh, the 13-inch MacBook. Uh, and he goes, Whoop! and he had this moment and he suddenly realized <laughs> Jason Snell, pretty smart guy, had left his MacBook that he needed to edit edit things and record things and do work on had left it at his house. Oops. And I mean, how do you forget your computer? Well, you forget your computer because you forget your computer. It happens right. all the time. People do it all the time. You know, and you know, you think about anything like uh, speaking of traveling, think about like with a jet. I mean, boy, I really hope. Remember learning in driver's ed how you're supposed to walk around the car, you look at the tires, yep. inspect everything. You know, it's n- nobody actually does that, but maybe we should. You know what I mean? If if you think about the like the the hundred year problems you end up having with a car, maybe it's because you didn't realize there was a tack in the tire and you go spinning off the road. I really hope there's always somebody at my jet that I'm about to fly in, like walking around and looking at every obvious thing that we know went okay. My gut is that's one reason airline travel tends to be safer than other things. Is I'll bet they are really mostly so say what you will about the industry, but I bet they are legally. Um, going around and making sure that every dumb, obvious thing we're pretty sure about got checked okay. You know, there's a reason when people do checklists, there's a reason somebody says, uh, you know, um, air, air filter uh, contingency plan. Somebody goes, check. That means we said it, we looked at it, we checked it off, and we both agreed that it's done. You know what I mean? Turn your key, sir. You know, there are so, if I have done this, and it's absolutely fascinating. Maybe I'll look for a few of them and, and put them into our show notes. But if you have ever Googled for like, flight training checklist or airline flight checklist. And and you'll come up with a lot of results that are like, don't forget your toothbrush. I'm talking about what pilots would actually use. And I'm not sure what the right Google juice is to find those lists, but their checklists are, we would consider them to be absolutely insane, but it's because all of these little switches and settings are so critical for a safe flight, but there are dozens and dozens and dozens of things that pilots need to do pilots and co-pilots sitting there before the takeoff, they're going down, just, you know, flip this, set it to this, do this, do this. And I'm not talking about the physical stuff of walking around the plane and making sure that like, you know, the tires aren't flat or whatever they're looking at, but these little settings throughout the entire cockpit of all of these different things that they have to do. And not only do you talk about wizardry, not only are they making sure that they're set the right way, but there's meaning to each of those things that's telling them something and they're it's just mind boggling. But yeah, that's that's why if we all did that kind of prep for every single setting in our car, you know, right. and looked looked under the hood and checked every tire. And yeah, I had to put get uh, put air in the tire, uh, one of my tires yesterday. And it you know, just doing something like that makes you really think about what else don't I really know is going on with this car that we just trust we're going to turn the key? Well, 
yeah, you can pull over to the side of the road if you really need to into a parking lot if there's a weird sound or something. But when you're in the sky, forget about it. And that <laughs> once I saw it, because I used to very much like John Syracuse, who I believe still has these issues with flying. I used to be way worse than him. And then we did an episode of Hypercritical where he talks about it. I didn't say very much during that episode, as was typical for me back then on that show. But I was way, way, had way more anxiety than he expressed uh, that he had and way more trouble traveling to the point where I uh, have even potentially certainly lost promotions, but maybe even over the long run lost jobs because I was so uh, nervous and unwilling to travel. And it, you know, that was a a big, big thing for me. But learning how much is involved, just getting to that point where, okay, let's taxi to our position on the runway. How much work goes into that is is shocking. And uh, for those of you in the audience listening who may have trouble flying, this was something that made me feel a lot better about it was realizing that it's not just like couple couple folks up in the front flipping some switches and putting their foot down on the gas. It, there's a lot that goes into that. And there was a couple airlines that d- used to do this. I don't know if they still do it. I think United might still do it, where you can actually listen with, you know, you plug oh, yeah, your right. headphones in. You can listen to all the conversations that the pilots are having uh, with, I guess with each other and with the the different towers as they're flying and the other pilots flying other planes around them, every single minute of that flight, they're in constant contact with other pilots, with the radio towers, with with uh, other folks flying around the world, talking about oh they're we're getting a little bit of chop at this altitude. Oh, I was just through there, drop down to thirty two thousand feet, and you'll see that this clears out. And tower will be like tower permission to drop. And tower's like yes, go ahead and do it. Or wait, we got someone else coming here, do it. And this you know, all of this constant contact it because to us as passengers, it's like what's going on up there, <laughs> you know, which is very much like if you know if you're a kid in the back seat and your parents are driving and you know mom has the map and dad is. Uh, is trying to see in the rain, like that makes you feel kind of nervous, but it's not like that with flying. And all of these things, we're talking about these basic steps, right? These basic, this checklist of things that you do that you can, you can master. And one right. of them for Snell, you know, he forgot a big one, like forgot it to bring his laptop. But it's, it's so big that you have to think to yourself, there's no way I'd forget that. Right. That's the big, that's the <laughs> bag number two, right? You got your clothes, you got your laptop, but you forget it somehow. Oh, God, I have a story to tell you off the air. But um, do we still have two sponsors? We do. Oh, uh, Cheese and Crackers. Would you like to tell me about something you like? I would like to tell you about Lynda. This episode is brought to you by Lynda.com, the online learning platform. They have over 3,000 on-demand video courses. doesn't matter what you want to learn about. could be business, could be technology, could be creative skills. They're giving listeners of this show a free 10-day trial. During the 10 days, you can access all of those videos Every single one of the videos, yours, you get to access it. You get to watch it. You can download it to your iOS or Android device. You can watch it on their site. It's it's just amazing what they have, topics to learn from, unbelievable. It's not just computer stuff. I mean, a lot of people go there like I do very frequently to figure something out. You want to ed- learn how to edit podcasts and logic, good place to go, Linda. You want to do video editing, yes, getting things done with David Allen, it's all there. But they have so many other things Uh, that are there that you would think of as not being computer stuff, whether it's fundamentals of design, they've got fundamentals of color, they've got uh, office workshop stuff that you can do, stuff about going paperless, 
All of this taught by industry experts who are so, so, so good at what they're doing and know so well how to teach the stuff that they are passionate about. This is not uh, YouTube video level stuff. This is professionals who know what they're doing and really, really high quality videos, great editing. You get in and get out and learn just what you need to learn the way that you want to learn it. So go get it. Take advantage of this uh, free 10-day trial. Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, lynda.com slash back to work. Sign up and I think you're going to love it. Thanks very much to Linda for supporting Back to Work with Merlin Man. Thank you, Linda. Um, I was trying to remember this thing and I did a little bit of uh, excavating here. Yeah, I remember this, there being this book uh, called The Checklist Manifesto. And, you know, I think maybe it's one of those books that, in this case, it's based on something this guy wrote for The New Yorker. I think you can probably just read the article <laughs> uh, from 2007 called The Checklist. And it's a doctor. Um, basically, and so of course, to turn it into a book has to come up with this whole thing about how checklists can like change your game. And in this case, I would encourage you to read this article, which I have not read in a couple of years. Um, but it's basically about like you take something like medicine in this case, he's a physician, and like what it what it can mean to take somebody even with as much expertise as a physician and force him or her to actually walk through a checklist of stuff to make sure that everything has been checked out. I would encourage you to look at it because I think it gets straight to the point of what we're talking about. And, you know, and actually in a funny way, it brings us right back to the expertise problem, which is that, you know, you know, if you're a very knowledgeable person, you're probably also a very confident person. Like to be a physician, you have to be a very confident person. You would think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. And I mean, you've got to have a pretty thick skin and, but also have, kind of decisions you're making are as a physician are things you don't want to be dithering about. You know, if suddenly if you're operating on somebody and suddenly there's some some blood spurting out of somewhere, you want to be able to move with a level of elan to go yeah. and take care of that because that's a thing that needs to be taken care of. But uh, I, I'm very interested in this idea. Um, I mean, you know, again, this is as recently as last week, I broke my own rule by not looking at the checklist. But it really gets at how Anything that you want to be good at also becomes a little bit of a craft. In this case, a craft where that humility ends up meaning a lot. Because to get better at it, you've got to realize how much of a dumbass you can be, how little you might know about a given new thing. You know, is my information all up to date? Is this something that I've done recently? Is this something that, you know, and then, so I guess I feel like it's a moving target is even too simple of a term for it. Whatever it is you try to get good at, whether that's traveling or programming or being a physician, there's also this recontextualization is that a word? Of new knowledge that's needed, right? The continuing education of learning about the, the latest medical techniques or the newest programming uh, languages, not just the newest, but the ones that picking the right horse for where, what's going to be a popular programming language in a year. What's a job I might be able to get in two years with a language that doesn't that nobody else has even heard of at this point. So, and you know, it takes expertise to get expertise, but then, ironically enough, it also takes that humility. So, to get good at this new language, like certainly there will be things that are mm, common is the wrong word, but are similar or are like cognates between the different languages or the different, um, you know, uh, scripting languages. But it takes that humility of knowing this is a thing I might need to know about. And I have to bring a little bit of beginner's mind to this to not go, oh, I'll just skip chapter three because they handle includes in pretty much the same way. All libraries are libraries. Right. Like, no, like if you're going to go from C to Ruby or from Ruby to Python or whatever. Like, no, you really need to go read about indentation and Python. That's going to be important. Like, don't skip that chapter. So anyway, I think the humility, humility part is interesting because there's nothing actually more humiliating than been, being somebody who should have known better in a such a situation. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't want to look stupid. That's a should have known better thing. I think we all, you know, like as I know, I know you teach your daughter a lot of different things and my son's always asking me, well, how do you do that? And, 
a lot of the time I see, maybe it's because I'm terrible at explaining things uh, or because I am very sort of list oriented and list focused that a lot of the time he'll be like, well, just, just show me how to do it. And that sums up like me through my twenties. Just, I just want to get to the cut to the chase, you know, and it's not impatience as much as it is this, like you're talking about confidence that I, I, I only need to see the end game part of it. I only need to see the end result. I don't need to see the, the steps one, two, three, four, and five. Just I'll look at step one, maybe glance at step two and show me step 10. And I'm smart enough to figure out everything in between. And I used to yeah. really believe that. And you know what? A lot of the time I could do that. Maybe five, seven times out of 10, I would be able to do that. But I didn't know when I wouldn't be able to do it. I would miss out on that. And then because of that lack of knowledge and, and perhaps being too confident in my own cognitive abilities to figure stuff out, that I yeah. would skip over those important steps. Like why would, you know, why would spacing and indentation matter in a modern programming language? That's, that's bananas. That's ridiculous. Well, <laughs> it does. If you're using Python, like you said, in Ruby, it doesn't cool. So uh, what does that mean? Ruby's better. Well, of course not. It just means that it's different and you can miss those things. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, if you sit down and just have the patience, but I always felt like I was in a hurry. That was mm -hmm. the one thing that changed for me in my, I probably in my thirties was that I realized that not being in a hurry brings advantages with it, that you can take your time with things and, and, and learn in a new kind of way, in a way that other people, I was always sort of envious of these people who seem to have a more complete knowledge. Well, it's just because they took their time. It's just because they enjoyed the process a little bit more than I ever gave myself the opportunity to enjoy the process. I always wanted to get to the end, cut to the mm -hmm. chase. And I guess in a way that is kind of impatient, yeah, isn't it? You know, just wanting to see, not like see how the end of a movie turned out, but just figure, okay, show me the thing that we're working toward and let me get there faster. Don't don't make me do the hello world example. I'll get the hello world. Well, you, well yeah, by implication, don't treat me like a dummy. Right. Or don't give me some long-winded explanation because you want to be expl explaining guy about how to do this thing. Yeah. And I think that is a challenge. I think it's a real challenge because I, I realize frequently... Um, on the one hand, there are tons of things where I just need to get out of the way. Like, she'll be fine. She will figure that out. Mm -hmm. There's other kinds of things where maybe sometimes it's high stakes, right? Whether when we talk about things like crossing the street, or maybe it's not even high stakes, but it's more like, ah, oh, gosh, I would love it if you didn't have to learn this in a dumb way like I did. Like, can I tell you the three surprising uh, tricks <laughs> about this thing that you're about to do? Because when you watch, especially when you watch a little kid and they're, they're figuring it out, and there's so much stuff they do need to just figure out. And let's, for, for, for a moment, let's set aside the whole, like, you don't want your kid to die in traffic or get their hands burned. Let's, let's take out the high stakesness of it and just say, like, gosh, there's just so much stuff that you learn over time. Like I remember, like I used to find it difficult to carry two fairly full glasses of water mm. from place to place because I'd inevitably spill one. And it wasn't probably till I was in college that I figured something out, which is, you know why I'm spilling it? Because I'm thinking too much about it. If you don't think about what you're holding and just let your body be a giant gyroscope, you can just walk with stuff in your hands that, and you won't spill I, it. That's a weird thing. You start thinking about it and that's, that's when you're going to, that's when you're going to spill it. Uh, speaking of drinks, this is a trick I've taught my daughter. If ever I say to my daughter, uh, you want to go get, get your refill on your water? And here's, here's a trick. I always hold my glass in my right hand. You know why? Because I'm always right. 
I'm always right. You taught me that on this show, and I love that, and it's the best thing in the I've whole never world. mixed up glasses ever since I started doing that. I think about so, it every time. I think about <laughs> you saying it to me on the show, like every single time, and it's the best thing in the world. So thank you for that. So so dumb, so simple, but, you know, she'll figure out her own things for that. But it's so, but having said all that, you know, there's some kinds of things where, like, you know, the idea of the whole, like, don't think about it too much when you're walking. It might take her a year, or, you know, maybe just me. Maybe I have a goofy brain, and uh, everybody else's gyroscope is better than mine. But there are lots of little, like, rules of thumb and tips for these kinds of things. And then there's the, the anti-rules of thumb. Like, well, if you're in a line somewhere, you know what? Don't change lines. It seems like the other lines are moving faster, but they're not. I, it turns out, if you change lines, you will almost always end up further behind than you were before. Just relax. Like, things like that. But it's when, like, there's things like... I'm trying to think of examples of this, but all the stuff you learn over time about how to make stuff, whether it's food or whatever, like, and you know what? Uh, don't put too much salt in because you can always add more salt in. <laughs> like, add the right amount of salt. You can't undo salt. You would not believe the arguments that go on in my house over how to draw a bath. It's ponderous because I, I'm not a physicist, Dan, <laughs> but there's, there's, I feel like I learned something in college. God, please email Dan about this and not me. Yeah. But you know what I do? Can I tell you how I run a bath? How? Okay, first of all, marble is always 11 degrees colder than the room. So if you've got something like like an old-style, like, stony kind of bathtub, the, you know what the first thing you have to do is? You're not just heating up. You're heating up the bathtub. You ever think about that? Marble is 11 degrees colder. 11 degrees cooler than whatever the room temperature is. Is that true? I don't know. I think it's true. I'm pretty sure it's true. But you ever lay on a marble floor and it's always colder than the room? Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. You got a bathtub, it's a bunch of cold stone. What's the first thing you do? Well, you know what I do? I run super hot water. Because unless you're a dingus, you know that if you want to have a warm drink, what's the first thing you do? You warm up the cup. Because mm-hmm. if you put hot liquid into a cold cup, you get cooler liquid, right? I'm not a physicist. No, I'm that's not a true. I'm, a physicist. I'm not a physicist. But all I'm saying is what I do is I go in there, I put in the stopper, and I run the bath super duper hot until it has lined the entire bottom of the bathtub and it's starting I sound like John Syracuse, don't I? <gasps> oh my God, I think he's affecting me. <laughs> and and it, it, start, it starts coming all, all, it starts coming up the sides a little bit. I run it super duper hot. I put my hand in the water and see if it's still super duper hot. If it's super duper hot, then I'm on the right track. You know what I do then? Then, then I adjust the temperature on the bathtub uh, spigot mm-hmm. to be exactly the temperature that I think would be comfortable. And by the time that water has gone in with the other water, you will have a very comfortable bath, even allowing for the fact that you want to have one more game of the Minions game before you go and take your bath. But that's not how the other people operate. See, my lady, whom I love, she runs the bath at exactly the temperature that she thinks it should be. Now, for me, that produces a cold bath. And secondarily, as your hot water starts to run out a little bit, what felt like a very reliable whatever that was, is actually getting a little bit cooler. Now, obviously, I sound like an insane person, and I probably am. But I think that is a great way to draw a bath, but no one in my house will listen to me, and now I sound like a nut. Can you imagine what that's like for me? Oh, yeah, I've been drawing baths for years. You do it different, though. Tell me how you do it, how you draw a bath. I never even thought about it. Just put the water on, let it run for a while, try to get the kid in there. Did you ever have one of those dinguses, like a little frog or something you can put in that tells you what the temperature is when they're little? Did you ever have yeah, that? yeah, we had like a little uh, duck that had the bottom of it that would like... Uh, like, yeah, like a little, little, little Fahrenheit duck? Yeah, and it would, it would have like a big no on it because it would be too hot or something. <laughs> but I found that it always got nervous and said no way before it was necessary to say no. 
Well, see, I think people don't account for the act like water is just this thing in a vacuum, not accounting for the temperature in the air. How hot yeah. or cold is it outside? Has it been a hot day? Has the kid been swimming? You know what I mean? And uh, I don't know. I think these are environmental factors. For but, sure. You know, I have the humility. If you have a better way to draw a bath, feel free to tell me. All I know is, here's the thing. If you do run out of hot water and it's only halfway full, you are S-O-freaking-L. Mm. If you use my method, you're guaranteed a base of excruciatingly hot water. Now, here's what I do also. I close the door and I say, guy, just so you know, got a hot bath running in there. And then my daughter and my wife go in. They stick their hand into the two inches of water and go, it's too hot. And I go, of course it's too hot. It's not a bath yet. That's not a bath. That's that. That's just water. Right. God damn it, Dan. I know. I could help so many people with my thought technologies. I love it. Mm, it's kind of off the rails. Did you want to talk about something else that you like? The last thing I'll tell you about today is Wealthfront. Wealthfront. A low-cost automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. It works 24-7 to manage your portfolio. They keep it diversified and all customized to your risk profile. That's the little thing you fill out when you're signing up with them. It tells them whether you're comfortable with like aggressive investment or more conservative investment. It's up to you. And they optimize their trading behavior to keep your tax bill low, all without ever charging commissions. So whether you've got millions or you are just starting out, which is a really good time, Wealthfront is the most sophisticated way to invest your money. You should be investing for the long term. And this is the thing I really wish I'd listened to all of my elders when I was just starting out who said, you know what, put, put a few thousand bucks away now and forget that you've done that and just leave it there and it will grow and grow. And uh, these guys, they take that to the next level. You can invest some money and their whole goal is for you to not think about it and not worry about it and just leave it alone. And what differentiates them from the rest of the folks out there is they never charge big fees at all. You're typically going to pay 1% to 3% of what you've got to have your, your money managed. These guys don't do that. Okay, It's way, way, way less, 0.25%. Or le- I mean, it's amazing how they do this thing. Uh, it's all automated. It's all behind the scenes. And uh, here's the special deal for 5 by 5 listeners wealthfront.com slash five by five you go there and they will manage your first fifteen thousand dollars entirely free of charge that's a big deal wealthfront.com slash five by five your first 15k invested free and no hidden fees no commissions no management costs go check them out wealthfront.com slash five by five and here is the disclaimer. For compliance purposes, I have to tell that Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read our full disclosure. Go check it out. Thanks to Wealthfront. 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 No overpass. No underpass. Sunday, Sunday. Hmm? Well, Friday. funny if investment was <laughs> investment was more. You know, it's not funny at all. Um, <clears throat> we had one more uh, very short thing I thought was interesting. Uh, listener Martin, 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 Martin. Listener Martin, Martin. says, uh, <laughs> and I'm adding this to the beginning, but um, the if song? you forgive me, Martin. If I could, if you don't mind, I'd like to add this to the beginning. <clears throat> so. Um, listen, Martin. Oh, says, that's that's your paraphrase. This is I, this is my edition. <laughs> um, so, um, when talking about childhood, 
Oh, sorry. When talking about childhood, could you please occasionally mention the ages associated with fifth grade, middle school, etc. for those who aren't familiar with them? <laughs> I'm not sure. That was kind of an English accent. Wait, well, yeah, uh, Martin it- is an international listener. He's an international listener. Aloha, Martin, and aloha, rest of the world. They're, this is a very common thing. Uh, when we talk about things, in this case, childhood, fifth grade, what ages are we talking about? I get equally confused. When they say like, oh, he was in the second form. Like, I don't know what that means. Is that oh, like yeah. second grade? No, the second form I think is like, is our equivalent of like seventh grade. It's extremely confusing. Is it really? It is because uh, privilege, Dan. Jeez Louise, white American privilege, American privilege, privilege, privilege. It's like pizza, pizza. You always get two. Here's the thing. Uh, I put, put something in notes that might be a little bit helpful. It is an article from a really cool looking website um, called Just Landed. And this is a website for people who are moving to a new country and want to learn about that country. Oh, yeah. Isn't that a neat idea? And in this case, this is the page on the American school system. So, uh, but I can make this fairly easy. Uh, well, I'll read a little bit of this. Uh, children, so for international listeners, thank you for listening. Children usually start kindergarten or grade one at the age of five or six and go up one grade per year until reaching grade 12 at the age of 17. So that's the short answer, is when we say kindergarten is the thing you go to when you're like usually five or six, uh, and then you go up one per year, you get first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10, 11, 12. Also in the United States, uh, they don't use these as much. We still say senior for a 12th grader. I think we usually still say junior. Do you hear, I don't hear, I feel like I don't hear sophomore as much as I used to. Not enough. Sophomore means the uh, third to the last year of whatever you're in. And freshman is usually like your first year out of four years. Right, thing. right. Red shirt. Red shirt, red shirt freshman. And you still, I think you still hear that. Um, so, but then, and I'd never heard it described this way, Dan. Uh, the 12 years following the kindergarten year are usually organized under what is known as the 633 plan. Have you ever heard that term? Never. Um, grades one to six are in elementary, aka primary school. Grades 7 to 9, junior high or middle school. Grades 10 to 12 in senior high. So I think elementary school is pretty easy to get. It's usually K through 5, kindergarten through 5th, or kindergarten through 6th grade. The thing that's confusing is that you might go to what's called a middle school or you might go to what's called a junior high school. A middle school is, what, 6th to 8th grade. So from when you're 12 to 12, 13, 14, right? Right, pre-high school. Right. Or you could, so a middle school is six through eight. And I think a junior high is thought of as seventh through ninth. So the junior high always confused me a little. And I have seen these kind of different depending on whether I was in Philadelphia or Florida. They treated the difference between middle and junior high and high school. I've seen those years fluctuate a little bit. Are you saying that there is a definitive today? There's a definitive ruling on this. Mm, no. Well, I mean, it's, it, uh, it differs in whether you have middle school or junior high. Yeah. And I, I don't some places really don't why. even I, have a junior high, right? It'll just go middle school think, to high school. That's how it was for me. Right. Where it would be nine through 12 would be high school in right. that case. High school was nine through 12 and middle school was, I think it might've been just seventh and eighth grade. Like, Oh my goodness. I bet you're right. You know, (gasps) so seventh and eighth was middle school. Then high school was nine through 12. And before that you had elementary school, which was first through sixth. And then we had uh, kindergarten was its own thing. And preschool was whatever came before that. Yeah. I I have to tell you, I I gotta tell you, I I never, I never heard of middle school 
until I was almost in junior high. Right. <laughs> no, I I only ever heard of like all I'd ever known of was kindergarten, one through sixth, seven, eight, nine, known as junior high school, and ten, eleven, twelve, which is considered high school. But you know, it's, it differs. It differs for everybody. But I thank thank you for bringing that up, listener. Listener Martin, uh, that's a really good point. I also have a great trick for knowing the years uh, of Harry Potter. Have I ever shared my trick with you? No. Oh, it's a tremendous trick. I'll find this for show notes, but I figured something out that probably everybody knows. But, um, oh, I should find this. There are, what is it, seven Harry Potter books? I'm confused because I think there's, there's, there's a movie that's in two parts. But here's, here's what you need to know. Okay, first Harry Potter movie. You know how old Harry is? No. He's 11. And guess what year it is? I don't know. 1991. Okay. One. One, one. First book, 1991. He's 11 years old, 10 plus one. Okay. And this is great. And every Harry Potter book after that is an academic year. So the second book comes out. You know what year it is? 1992. Takes place in 1992. You know how old he is? He's 12. Oh, okay. Here's a crazy one. The sixth Harry Potter book. Guess what? Turns out 1996. Guess how old he is? He's 16 years old. You're welcome. The world's most obvious trick, but you'll never again forget. Like you turn on the fourth Harry Potter movie, and and you know how old he is? He's fourteen. That's great. How, how are you not like freaking out about how great that is? I thought you were reading the books. I, well, we're still reading Howard Hughes's Life in Madness, so I haven't dug okay. into those yet. You're reading. You're reading your son the Howard Hughes biography. Well, he asked to have it read to him, so yes, we're that is our bedtime book. I read my daughter uh, Pusheen, the Fat Cat. Wow, I feel really behind. Well, I mean, oh my, just, oh my goodness, you're reading him a, a Howard Hughes biography. I feel like I feel like a real piker here. Well, he was into the movie, and then he wanted to. I can't believe you showed him that movie. It's a oh good my movie. goodness, it's a very good movie. Way of the future. <clears throat> no, he loves it. He loves the story. He's very into it, and he seems to be following along quite well. I'm so happy to hear this. That's <laughs> I, horrifying. It seems interesting to him, but we're not to the madness part yet. We're still mm. at the life part. That's uh, good. Life and madness. Life comes first, then ma- the madness. <laughs> oh, because of the, the titular title. Yes. Oh, that's good. Okay, well, I think we covered just about everything. Is there anything else we need to cover? Oh, listen, everybody, hey, please, uh, if, you, if you're in San Francisco, uh, go to the Slate uh, Political Gap Fest tonight. Uh, there's a link in notes, and uh, it's going to be great. They're, Do you have a, a, mad, a man comic uh, thing coming up, too? Oh, uh, uh, no, I don't think we have anything scheduled right this second. Okay. But, but, Thank you for asking me about that. We will be having another one. Um, and you know what? It was nice hanging out with you. Uh, I didn't, I, I, we haven't said it on the show because I talked about the downfall of San Francisco, but it was very nice hanging out with you. It was and great. I loved it. It has to have a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I still, I'm going to, till the day I die, I'm going to feel bad about making you go to a ramen place. I figured they'd have something you could eat there. I knew they wouldn't and it didn't matter. I was there for the company. All right. Well. Nevertheless, uh, sorry about that. And I did have a great time. It was wonderful hanging out with you. (laughs) All right. And on that note, let's uh, button this up. All right. Okay. I love you. Love you too, Merlin, man. (laughs) 